If we can't talk to each other, we're not gonna make it. Sometimes I feel like I, I, I've been on more than I can chew. Most of the time, I work in a glass jar and lead a very uneventful life. A face full of glass hurts like hell when you're in it. That's weird. That glass looks half full to me. Eating glass. Eating glass and staring into the abyss. Glass? Who gives a shit about glass? Who the fuck is this? It's kind of part of our culture to eat glass. Better get some safety goggles next time. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> Hey everybody and welcome to Chewing Glass, the show where we talk to developers building in the Solana ecosystem. Today I'm joined with Zano, co-founder of Gito Labs, Ultimate Gigabrain, and 10x shit poster on Twitter. Um, Zano, how's it going, man? Going well, man. I get my shit posting from you. <laughs> yeah, man, it's cool. It's cool to have you on. I know like uh, I can't remember when we talked about this. I think I met you in real life for the first time at Breakpoint, which is uh which was pretty cool to see the to see the the whole team there and uh sort of get to know all the brains behind all this crazy stuff you guys have been up to. And more recently, I only sort of started to familiarize myself with what the hell you guys are even doing. But we'll get into a little bit that uh, we'll get into that a little bit later. Um, but as most people know, usually start out this show. This is like I've been saying this new thing lately where this is basically behind the music, but for nerds. Um, so we'd like to sort of hear a little bit of history about like where you came from and, and then like sort of where you're going. So, uh, just to kick it off, like how, how did you get into, um, into tech in, in general? Like were, were you always a dev or like, were you a CS student or something like that? Yeah. So I studied, uh, computer science at George Mason. Um, didn't really have any prior programming experience, like in high school or anything like that. I just always kind of I've always been sort of hands-on. Like I like things that require skill, um, whether it be sports or like instruments or whatever. And then computers kind of felt that way. Um, I knew I didn't want to like work in fields either. I didn't want to be like a blue-collared worker, but I do in a way want to be a blue-collared worker (laughs) and computer programming feels like the right balance there. I mean, you you got the beard for the blue-collar like lifestyle. I'm not going to lie, but like, you know. Um, So the, uh, I guess... Yeah, so you weren't you weren't actually doing any sort of like um, HTML or any computer stuff like while you were in high school before you before you uh, decided to do CS that just sort of like came out of nowhere. You're like, I'm gonna jump into computers. Yeah, it was like you know like basic MySpace background stuff, but <laughs> beyond that, like I was yeah, I was never like a huge computer geek, right? Uh, I always knew I was I was good at math. Um, I was like decent at math and you know enjoyed science, but I didn't want to be like a math professor, like go deep down that academic rabbit hole. So once I took my first intro to comp side class, it just, it was like a Java class, super easy, but it was just really cool. Like making, making shit work basically on a computer. Did you, did you do the classic Java, like make, um, make a, like a blackjack game? Cause that was one of the things that I did whenever I was doing my CS degree for Java. Oh, that's interesting. No, ours was, what was it? Oh yeah. It was like, it was something with the elections, like something about write write some logic around like if the House of Representatives like the way like a vote goes through the Senate or the House of Representatives, something like that. Oh wow, interesting. Yeah, we, I'm, yeah. I'm old, so we we just had blackjack. Um, yeah, uh, that's better. <laughs> yeah. So um, so beyond schooling and, and all that, you got into tech. Like, 
what 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 was sort of like as soon as you got out of there you're like all right time to get into to this world like what the hell am i gonna do now like um what was your sort of job journey like what kind of companies were you looking for and like sort of just like walk me through that like path of like your developer sort of journey um like leading up to like pretty much before you got into web3 yeah i think like I knew what I wanted to do as far as day to day goes. I always wanted to just be on a computer, writing software, dealing with hard problems. Um, but it, you know, funny enough, originally I wanted to do more like consumer facing stuff. Um, so like right out of college, I started working at this startup <clears throat> called Hungry, basically like a Uber, um, an Uber model, uh, an Uber business model for like office catering. Um, so you connect like freelance caterers and whatnot and they go rent out kitchens um uh like there's pop-up kitchens you could just go cook out of apparently and then they go uh we connect them to like offices and companies that are that are looking to rent out caterers um so that was cool right that was all like ruby on rails typical that sort of stack and then we migrated everything over to like uh like microservices and whatnot so it was it was really interesting to be a part of that because i got to see like uh you know, working on like this legacy code base to like grokking it and then like tearing it apart and really just, uh, yeah, like migrating it over. Um, so, so it was cool to get that exposure straight out of college. Back, like full, full, full back end, or were you doing like, did you do some front end stuff, full stack or, or what? I'm assuming mostly back end. No, it was actually full stack. So, uh, <clears throat> like, I used to enjoy doing front end stuff. It felt sort of therapeutical sometimes to like get away from just like back end engineering. Oh yeah, you like CSS? That's that's therapeutic for you? No, 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 not that, not that. <laughs> we had a CSS guru. No, I'm talking yeah. like React. So like like right in the middle. Yeah, connect yeah, just connecting the the front end to the back end. So, yeah. Right. Just gluing shit together. So you did the Uber th- uh the the sort of Uber for catering for businesses stuff and then like how about after that? Like the like I guess I, I mean you're pretty young, so like you had a few other jobs be- between now and and where you are now or yeah, so I was doing that. Um, well, I skipped over like before that. Like I had a pretty like legacy sort of uh, government contracting role, pretty boring stuff. But yeah, after the after the uh, hungry startup, I went over to Amazon. I uh, got some big tech exposure. That was cool in its own way, um, but I could only like handle that for a year. What were you doing there at Amazon? Um, like evil ads pipeline stuff. So <laughs> getting ads Love on your <laughs> yeah, nice. Yeah, and then yeah, I had enough of Amazon after about a year, and then um, yeah, started looking elsewhere, um, specifically crypto. When did you actually like get into crypto? Not even on like the development side. Like, like you start to ginning on some coins. Like, wh- when did that happen for you? Yeah, so uh, 2017, I had this buddy um, who's yeah. So I had this buddy who had been in crypto for a while, right? And he he's straight degen, still is. Uh, love him for it. Love it for him. Um, but yeah, he got, he red pilled me basically on Bitcoin, like just on the whole, you know, uh, just like the banking system and everything, like not a, a trustless sort of like permissionless, um, ledger made sense at the time. So I started, <clears throat> I just started speculating on it, speculating on that. And then whatever, like altcoins that, uh, McAfee would chill like back in 2017, that was the move. <laughs> um, and like, I, rem- I remember those yeah, days, random, like crypto YouTube. Yeah. Those were Times were easier. I think they like got harder over over the years. But yeah, that's it's kind of when I started. Um, just 2017, degening on coins, um, and didn't really stop. <laughs> Still haven't stopped. Yeah. 
Uh, so wait, I think we talked about this though, but like when you were like sort of doing your work experience, like you did get exposed to some like crypto, not, not actually blockchain development, but you were working on some sort of uh, trading, like some trading system. Yeah. So this was, uh, you're probably referring to like my first job in crypto. So like right after Amazon, I quit, um, jumped into crypto. This was around 2020. This was like my first actual dive into like what the hell is everything. Um, you know, it all seems magical from the outside. I think even for like, uh, regular developers coming from web two, but really it's all the same. Like it's all just code at the end of the day, running on computers. Um, so it was really cool to like demystify that. Um, yeah, I was working at the startup called parsec.finance. <clears throat> Essentially it's like a, um, it's like a Bloomberg terminal for DeFi. Um, and so like what that means is like you get really rich charts. Um, you get like this, yeah, you get, you get this dashboard with all these charts that index basically DeFi data. So like DeFi data being Uniswap, Radium, um, you know, lending markets that are on EVM chains. It was, it was more EVM heavy. I think there's, they're starting to look more into Solana now, but that was like my first dive into crypto. Yeah. When we, and when we were talking, like this is basically just charts based on solely DeFi. Like they don't even, you're not even tracking the, uh, the, the centralized sort of trading stuff, only DeFi straight up. Right. It's straight like DeFi power user catered. Um, so you want to see like what's happening on Aave. You want to see what's happening on like different DEXs across different chains. It's perfect for you. Cool. And you were, you were pretty much like doing like, um, building what what languages you're building that in like you were this was all like sort of front end sort of stuff or you were working with sdks right no so i was yeah like i was doing more back end stuff so like the actual data indexing so we would basically subscribe to like an eth node uh subscribe to transactions happening parse event logs and whatnot and then our back end would actually like ingest that data uh normalize it transform it put it in like a big sql database the actual like logic was written in this Weird programming language. Uh, it's pretty cool. It's called Elixir. Um, it's like the Ruby on Rails for Erlang, for the Erlang VM. Um, yeah, <clears throat> it was, it's a really interesting language. Um, interesting times, I think. So so with all that, like this sounds like we're sort of leading up into your like, okay, like cryptos sounds pretty dope. Like, like what led you to like, what led you to Solana? Yeah, so while we while I was there, it was like like I said, it was all EVM based, and then we kind of started digging into Solana. I was I was leading that um, I was leading like that research uh, a bit. I started looking into it, and Solana just seemed like it was doing something very different compared to everyone else, right? Um, all the other L ones seemed to be like a for- well, they weren't they didn't seem to be their actual like forks of the EVM chains, um, Ethereum, right? Solana was like doing something different. Specifically, what was cool was like the parallel, parallelizable runtime um, and the programming model. So, um, yeah, really like the challenge and like the the cool engineering of Solana brought me over. Um, and yeah, here for the vibes now. <laughs> did you start playing around and building on Solana? Did you know anything about Rust, or did you sort of just like dive right into where you sort of are today? Um, was there like a progression there or did you just like, how did that happen? Yeah. So there was a, a slight progression. Um, <clears throat> yeah. So back in like, like 2020, 2021, um, uh, my friend and I, who's Pwn Lord 69, we're running like various, <laughs> uh, yeah. DeFi like yield farming strategies on chain, um, mainly on like EVM chains, 
But then we started looking into radium, started having like all these interesting farms. By interesting, I mean like 69,000% APR farms and stuff. Uh, True so degenerate like, shit. Right. Yeah, so like my first actual exposure to Solana's uh, sort of programming model was just like from a, you know, from a bots, bot operator standpoint, like how do I actually interface with programs on the chain? So you were the one that was spamming the network, taking the chain down? Uh, yeah. <laughs> just, just testing and prod. Yeah, it happens. Yeah. Cool. Yeah. So, um, yeah, I, I, we, we can't really do this without sort of talking like, like what happened beyond that. Cause I think I thought it was like, like, I always like to hear this stuff. So like you, you're, you're working, um, at a MEV company right now. Um, and, and again, I don't want to go too deep into that yet. Cause I got a bunch of questions for you about how the hell MEV even works. Um, but like, how did, how did you get like to where you are now? Like, and like, what was the, okay, now I'm working in MEV and I, and I work for this company. How did, how did that happen? Right. Uh, so like, you know, I mentioned the, like the yield farming strategies and all that, that all felt very MEV adjacent. I was very aware of like, uh, you know, I read the Flashbots um, diving into like the Dark Forest paper that when it came out. Um, by the time I had actually like understood what MEV was, I felt like it was saturated. Like I didn't want to compete in that market. Um, but, you know, I feel like just like extracting values, whether it be, uh, whether it be like yield farming strategies and uh, just like different like long tail strategies on chain um, are all very MEV adjacent, if not like under that umbrella. So yeah, <clears throat> uh, my buddy that I was actually working with at the time, Pwn Lord, um, saw a tweet from Buffalo, who's now my co-founder. It was yeah. like, it was something along, yeah, it was something along the lines of uh, what does a MEV DAO look like on Solana? Um, and he tagged me and like, we started just like chatting, uh, chatting about Mev. I think I think he had Buffalo had more like actual like traditional what people consider like traditional Mev experience at the time. So so we just started chatting and we're like, well, let's uh, let's see what we can do from here. Hell yeah! I mean, like it, it's wild, like how many connections like this literally um, happen on Twitter, especially from a guy named Pwn Lord sixty nine or whatever, and like, and here you are today. Uh, so I do yeah. definitely want to talk about Mev. Like I know a lot of my, like uh, a lot of the people who watch this show probably somewhat understand Mev and like, I'm still in that place where like, I, I still kind of get it, but like explain it like I'm five, like what is Mev? Um, yeah, just what is it? Yeah. Um, so like my definition of it may vary, uh, amongst people, but the way I see it is like the sequencing of events, uh, at a particular point in time, uh, affects the profit outcomes of, of like transactors on the chain. Um, and point in time being like a specific slot or block on a blockchain. An example I, I like to use, uh, cause I, I was explaining it to my parents too, right? They want to know what the hell I'm doing. So, <laughs> so I explained to them, like, um, it's like, you know, you go to a nightclub, you know, there's, it's, there's a hot DJ in town, there's 10 tables inside. Um, and with each person that reserves a table, the price of tables go up. Um, tables being like block space in this case. So if I really want to see this DJ, I'm willing to bid up to like some, you know, tip up to some amount to cut the line and get the table before like the price actually like uh, skyrockets. So you can see like, you can see that as sort of, that's kind of like MEV, right? Because the, the line is uh, transactions waiting in a queue the sequencing or the ordering of everyone in the line affects like how much everybody pays for a table inside. 
Yeah, actually, that's a that's a pretty good analogy that sort of helps you sort of like visualize like what that actually looks like. But there's I mean, there's there's obviously a ton more to it. And, and, and we'll definitely sort of get to that. So obviously, Mev was like, this is this was a thing that was happening on Ethereum. I remember early in like being on Solana. And I, I don't know if this is actually what people said, but it was something like, there's no Mev on Solana. Can you even do Mev on Solana? Why would you even do Mev on Solana? Like, was there like a point like, was it abundantly clear that this was going to work and make sense to you? Or like, what's the difference between like Mev on Ethereum versus Solana? Obviously, there's like a speed difference. So you have to have some high powered uh, machinery to make sure that you're able to to even do that. Right. Yeah, I think um, to answer the question of is there Mev, I think there is Mev on every open blockchain where there is some final arbiter of transaction ordering. Right. <clears throat> so, yeah, so like, you know, Solana is a, a public blockchain. There is, uh, there's like a leader at some point in time that actually proposes a block. Uh, given those two things, I think you can't really say there's no MEV on Solana. I think the MEV game is just a little different on Solana because of the, the lower block times and um, just like other various um, like properties of the network. Yeah, I don't think it was actually that like there is no MEV. Well, there wasn't currently at the time nobody was doing it. And it was the question is like, I think it was mostly just like, could you even do that? I do remember people like I do remember like chatter about like there is no MEV on Solana because like the block times are so slow or so, so fast. Um, I, I, I remember that. And I, I, I still think there's people out there that think that um, <laughs> they just haven't like looked into it enough. All right, now let's talk about Mev in terms of like, is this good? Like you, you just hear stuff. Like if somebody is like that's like sort of a layman to Mev and and some of that deeper things is like I've heard people say it's it's the root of all evil. Not really, that's an exaggeration. But like, is Mev good for Solana? Um, and is Mev good for users? Yeah, I mean, I think MEV in and of itself isn't necessarily good or bad. I think it's just like an emergent property of uh, permissionless blockchains. I think what you actually do with that MEV um, and like if you like creating actual systems around redistributing MEV and sharing it with the network, I think that's where like you can consider it good. I do think like the prev like the fact that there is MEV on a chain is sort of a, a proxy signal for that chain being healthy um, and that chain actually having um user activity i think mev is like a direct function of user activity without any user activity there's not really any mev in the first place um now if you if you couple the actual like presence of mev with a system to redistribute the mev to the rest of the network now i think you can call it a good thing um because now you're like incentivizing people to come in and stake to this network because you're able to actually hire offer a higher yield offering that's sustained over longer periods of time yeah, so like my 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 sort of just like really like mon my, the view that I the, the things that I used to hear about Mev and like like was always from the Ethereum world and Mev like we probably should have said this a while ago but we'll go ahead and just say it now like it started as minor extractable value and the way that this worked was people would go like not like walk up to a validator or a node, but they would pay those that node to reorder the transactions for them so that they could profit higher off of certain sorts of trades. Um, and they would and and you have to have the funds to to pay the to to pay these guys to do that. Um, 
And what, so that name has been updated since then. Like it's no longer like a uh, minor extractable value. What's that update? What's the updated term terminology for MEV? Yeah, it's a more appropriate term now. It's maximum extractable value. So it's like agnostic of a proof of work or proof of stake system. It's just like, right. this is the maximum amount that can be extracted from uh, reordering these sequences or of transactions. So, and this is, you're talking about this being good for users. Um, I, I want to move. I want now, and you also sort of alluded to the fact as if like you're redistributing those rewards to the people. Then this is really where the the goodness of of Mev comes in. So you're the co-founder of Gito Labs, um, and and you're co-founding this with um, with Buffalo, which I think many of you guys know out there, um, and. This is highly technical work at really insane speeds. Um, how is this? No, number one, what is Gito? Like, we're, I know this, like, everybody's probably watching or listening, like, understands now what MEV is, but what is Gito? Um, and, and, like, what are, you, what are you guys trying to actually solve? Yeah. So, like, contrary to a lot of people's beliefs, is uh, Gito is not a MEV shop. Uh, what Gito is, is it's providing the MEV uh, like infrastructure to allow efficient extraction of MEV and redistribution of that MEV to the network. We're going to have to sort of dive a little bit deeper into this to make sure how that works. So like from what I understand, Gito has a client um, that validators on Solana are now using. And, and those clients, um, that client that they're running takes everything that you've built, abstracts it away and allows them to capture MEV value. And if, and, and they, they redistribute that to their users, giving the stakers of the network a higher reward. Is this right? right? Yeah. I mean, yeah, that's, that's basically on the target right there. It's like we ship this client, added a bunch of code to it to kind of uh, where there's this notion of bundles, which is basically just like a data structure uh, that represents a list of transactions these transactions will execute all or nothing. Um, so, you know, you can imagine a situation where you only want, um, you know, a certain transaction to execute if like everything executes, you don't want any partial like, uh, successes. So <clears throat> the client supports bundles, um, the way, uh, like the interface for that, the API interface is a gRPC API. Um, accepts bundles and then sort of proposes these like proposes the proposes this block like a normal block so a block with the bundle just looks like any other block so there is no consensus modifications to the client solely just like the ingress um, and with that <clears throat> we had to, we ship um, what we call a block engine this is the thing that runs the off-chain auctions of bundles um, so you know this thing receives um, like bundles from all these searchers. We only want to submit the highest paying ones. Uh, we don't want to submit all of them because some bundles may invalidate other bundles. So if you have a bundle A and bundle B both touching, like for example, a radium market or an orca market, then there's a chance that like if this bundle A succeed, you know, actually gets executed, it'll invalidate the state transition of bundle B. So we choose whoever's willing to pay the highest. Um, submit that to the validator. The validator runs that, um, you know, executes that transaction, proposes it out to the network. But now, like, step going back to the bid that was attached with the bundle, we take a portion of that, and this is all like this can all be tuned by the validator themselves. A portion of that goes to the validator that 
actually executed the bundle. And then the rest of that goes to the stakers that were staked with that validator. And this runs every epoch. Okay. Yeah, we're going to have to demystify this a little bit. There's a couple like sort of terms that you were through in there that that I didn't know until recently. And, and like what you're talking about um, a searcher um, and a searcher is essentially, from my understanding, is, 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 is a user. But in this case, that user is actually a bot. Um, and, that, and, and a bundle is, what is a bundle? Just a list of transactions where it's like guaranteed to execute all or nothing. So the all or nothing stuff, like this is something that's, that's super interesting. Like why the all or nothing, um, like just like, just like sort of in a simple term, like what's that means? Like you say, okay, we're going to, we're going to submit a bundle. It has to be all or nothing. Um, like what's the sort of like idea behind that? I think when when you and I spoke before, it was more around like the idea of arbitrage might be like a simple example to explain like a, a simple arbitrage and why it's necessary that everything in that bundle actually is executed because if it doesn't, there's like obviously consequences to that. Yeah. So let's say, um, let's say there's an ARB between Orca and Radium, for example, you want to buy the asset from Orca and then sell it for higher on Radium, but you don't want to like, so let's say those have to be two separate transactions just for the sake of this example. Um, if you buy it, and then your transaction to sell fails just because uh, it could fail for many reasons, right? If it fails, now you're holding this asset that you don't necessarily want to hold. Um, so to mitigate that like inventory risk, you want to basically submit a bundle where it's like, okay, well, if that second transaction did fail, then your first one actually fails too. So you don't ever actually hold the asset. Right. So like, if I'm going to buy over here and sell over there, I want this thing to fail because if I bought here and this other one failed, then like, yeah, just sort of like basically just reiterating what you described, but, um, with, okay. So that makes, that makes a lot of sense. Well, um, slight sense to me. Um, and in all of this, how, how has Jito benefiting from, from these, this whole situation in terms of like, obviously you guys have a business model. Like, is it like, what's the, how does that work? Yeah, I mean, so our block engine collects a small block builder's fee. Um, so like with uh, back to the tip we were talking about, we collect a small fee on that, um, and then the rest really gets redistributed. And that's part of the transaction. So like the, the buy order, the sell order, and the Jito transaction all have to succeed um, in, in order for that whole entire thing to be like executed. Right. So like the tip is actually just a, uh, like Solana transfer. Um, we expect there to be like a Solana transfer to, um, one of eight, uh, public keys. So it's like, if you tip any one of these eight public keys, then you're eligible for this bundle to actually be considered in the auction. If you don't, then it's like, well, you're not tipping anything. Your bundle just kind of gets discarded from our system. Yeah, and like this is this is probably one of the more technically technically in depth sort of episodes I've ever done. But like, it, I'm just super curious, and and I'm and I'm sure a lot of other folks are. So we talked. I, I don't know if we fully like went over the part of the the sort of blockchain, the off chain auction stuff. So like, one of these bots or searchers sends this to Gito's client and says, "Hey, here's a thing that I want done, um, and if it looks." And then, like, how does the auction happen once they sort of propose that to you? What's what does that look like? Yeah, so the auctions happen at discrete time increments. Um, so, like, 
<clears throat> we batch these auctions into 100 millisecond time intervals within a slot. So, you know, slots 400 milliseconds, uh, basically you get four auctions per slot. Now, so we, <clears throat> we start receiving bundles, for example, like just walking you through like the flow of it. We start like uh, collecting all the bundles for like, let's say we're at time zero for the next 100 milliseconds. We're going to have all these bundles that we collect and then we're going to we're going to run them through this auction in parallel. Um, the parallel point is important, right? That's like Solana's what I think is one of Solana's coolest features with the like parallel execution runtime. So we know beforehand what state bundles touch. So let's say your bundle touches Orca and mine only touches, you know, uh, like, like drift, uh, we're touching different pieces of state and our bundles don't necessarily need to compete against each other. So we would run two separate auctions that run in parallel for our bundles, meaning like, your tip isn't going to compete against my tip and potentially both of our bundles could actually get submitted as a batch to the validator to get executed in parallel. Okay. And then they're, they're submitted to the validators that, that are running the Jito client. And the only way that this actually works correctly is if like when you, when you sub, you submit that, do you, you have to submit it to you have, Okay, let me let me re, let me re sort of phrase that because I tripped myself up a bit. But we're basically talking about once all that stuff is decided and those auctions are done, you submit that to the validators. But the only way that that actually works is if the person um, who is the leader at that time is running the Jito client. Yeah, correct. So our back our back end tracks that right. It'll track like you know the leader schedule ahead of, ahead of time, so you can kind of look at. Um, okay, well, we know that a Jito, Jito validator is coming up, so it's safe to like submit the, well, it's okay to submit the bundle at this particular point in time. If there is no Jito validator, there is no bundle to, like, you can't really submit any bundles. Um, so as it currently stands, uh, there's about 10% of the network stake running a Jito client. So you can, you can, uh, assume like 10% of the time you can land, or you can try to land a bundle. So just talking about this, 400 millisecond block times, running four auctions, like doing all these different things, like that sounds really, really fast. Like, like what speeds are we talking about when you guys are sort of like performing all these, all these auctions and like ta- and, and speaking with searchers and all that stuff? Like it has to fit within a 400 millisecond window. Yeah, I mean, I still think it's like crazy how fast everything can go and like continue to get faster over time. So we uh, we measure all our latency uh, in microseconds. So we we try to optimize at the microsecond level. I think searchers always. Uh, I think searchers also do the same thing. Um, yeah, it's it's wild. That's one fraction of a millisecond. A microsecond. It's smaller than a millisecond. This stuff actually s- sort of blows my mind, especially on the tech side of things. Um, but I. To sort of wrap up the sort of Jito conversation, I, I did want to ask like a couple more things. Like, how many people are actually working at Jito right now? Because I don't think I like a hundred percent sure. Yeah, so there's uh, there's nine of us, seven of us are engineers, um, and we're continuing we're we're continuing to grow. So, um, for those of you listening, if you if you're interested in hard engineering problems um, on the engineering side, then please reach out. And if you know you, uh, you know we're also looking at other other roles like marketers and and what have you. Cool. Yeah, I mean, like I'm sure even if you weren't necessarily hiring and somebody's brain was big enough, you'd hire them anyways. Right. You can't you can't <laughs> say no to talent. 
we've talked about we talked about judo we talked about your history a bit i i want to sort of dive into sort of you you were working on like more higher level programming language ruby on rails i think you talked about go uh react and all these stuff after you're going through that process and you're joining judo like you you, you basically came face to face with a very low level language also a, very, a low level language is one and it's one of the more popular ones but at the same time like it is quite different than all those other languages that you were writing in like what was your ex- like what was your glass chewing experience like to get you to a place where you can actually do mev in rust on solana that sounds like pretty um pretty challenging yeah i mean i'm a masochist so <laughs> no so yeah, I mean, it, it, it's tough. Like Rust is, especially in the beginning. So it took me a solid like six to eight weeks to actually be like, all right, I, I, I'm kind of productive in this programming language. Um, and then you know, like once I hit like the three month mark, I felt like I actually could get off the ground and start like, uh, just like writing a ton of code um, without really thinking too hard about it. I think like the thing about Rust is like the borrow checker, and uh, you know, we hear, I, this, it, we hear this quite often, right. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, it feels like you're fighting the compiler for like the first three months. That's what it feels like. And then after that, you're like, oh, wait, the compiler is my friend. Because if this thing compiles, like this thing probably works. Yeah. <laughs> like, how did you actually learn Rust? Um, are you are you just like start? Did you immediately start diving into code? You watching YouTube? You read the Rust book? Like, what was your what's your sort of methodology for like getting into like to, to a new like like low level tech like that? Yeah, I don't. I don't find like reading the book to be too useful without actually like having some experience, hands-on experience. So yeah, just getting my hands on it. Um, and we, out, we also like source dive the Solana code base for, for like two to three weeks before we started all of this, that helped a bit. We got to learn like, uh, some of the patterns that they use there, like their pipelining patterns and whatnot. Um, and then, yeah, finally just started writing code and then, uh, fighting the compiler, like I said. And then after that, now I have like the Rust book here, and now it actually makes sense to refer back to it sometimes. Ah, so that's a good reference material for you. Yeah, there's a lot of different types yeah. of learners. Some people do do like the tutorial side. Some like to read. But you, you are essentially saying that you learned Rust in tandem with Solana, which like most people essentially have to do. Which was the hardest part of that? All the like um, accounts, um, PDAs, and all that stuff, or Rust? Like, which was the most challenging part side of that for you? Yeah, I definitely think the Solana programming model is the harder part out of the two. Like the programming model is 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 very functional. It's like a functional programming model. So I think even with like functional functional programming languages, we're not wired to sort of think that way. Like the schools uh, schools don't really wire us that way. Um, so it's like it's tricky on that front. Yeah, I mean, like this is this is the feedback like. The, the whole chewing glass meme always like comes up and like I've always told people like this isn't learning Rust. This isn't actually learning Solana. This is learning both of them at the exact same time is the real sort of glass chewing that takes place. Even though like Solana just by itself also might be considered a little bit of chewing glass. A lot, there's been a lot of tools built lately. Like the, we, to be honest, we almost renamed the show because like the chewing glass whole meme started forever ago. Like we got people out there building insane, like 
frameworks. There's a Solana Unity SDK. Like there's all these different indexing like um, services. There's like so much stuff. So it can't, there's still glass chewers out there chewing glass so that other people don't have to. But like there is definitely like it's, we're not really, we're, it's not really the same thing anymore. But like just for historic purposes, we decided to just keep the name chewing glass, especially when we talk to somebody like you who literally like, wait, you, you learned Solana, you learned Rust and then like had to learn Solana and Rust while doing MEV on 400 millisecond block second or 400 millisecond block times at the exact same time. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> I have a bowl of glass that I'm about to go eat right after this. <laughs> uh, yeah, that's funny. There's a couple questions that I always ask everybody on this show. Um, actually, there's a few different questions that I like to ask, and one is like. What what really sucks about like your answer might be different than a lot of people because a lot of people are like working on like the DAP layer um, sort of stuff or directly smart contracts. So I'd be interested to hear your answer like for you, like what really sucks about Solana, like in your world um, specifically or is there like anything that sticks out to mind? Maybe there's not. Yeah, I think uh, like I'd be lying if I said everything was perfect. I think uh, Val like system administration of validators um is still is still pretty tricky we have a guy on the team who made the joke the other day he said uh solana is really not proof of uh history or anything it's proof of devops and i thought that was <laughs> i thought it was funny but it's also true yeah this is i mean like just like with all things man like we're like we're evolving over time and, and things get better although like for the for the earlier guys it it, it really sucks i i i I still say this today. I have no idea how the Armanis and the Daffys of the world um, actually built on Solana when there was literally only the core documentation and not another piece of information out there on the internet about this. And they somehow managed to like build all this crazy stuff. I mean, it was it was mostly Discord and direct contact with the actual core engineers. And it's still like, I mean, it, it was an incredible feat to build on Solana pre all this different tooling and all these, and a lot of it's not even just the tooling or the content. It's the access to this massive community of developers where you can just like tag somebody on like Twitter and be like, yo man, can somebody answer this? Somebody retweets it. And then they get like 15 people like on the Solana community just being like, oh yeah, I got it. Um, and there's, there's a ton of people. Like, I mean, you help people like online and like it's, it's pretty, pretty cool to, to actually see. Yeah. Those early guys are champs. I mean, I don't know what I do without anchor. When did you start um, actually building on Solana? Do you roughly know, like, what, what sometime in 2022? No, it was, so it was June 2021. Oh, damn. Uh, where we okay. actually, yeah, we actually, like, started the R&D and then, um, but, you know, most of my work's focused on, like, the validator, like, the actual validator code base. Right. Um, and then the final question, and again, like, just because of the the depth of knowledge that you have like your answer is probably going to be different in a lot a lot of people maybe it's not but what is the like, like what's one piece of advice you'd give to anybody that like that you know is about to be like all right i'm gonna learn solana like i'm gonna do this thing um like how, like what's your advice to somebody that's like thinking about jumping in um it could be technical advice it could be like just sort of like any advice that comes straight to your mind yeah i think like if you know you want to build on solana then don't hesitate. You just got to kind of show up and, you know, at least get, get 1% closer to your goal every day, like do something every day that's related to this, whether it be on the technical front or like less technical stuff. Um, and don't be afraid to ask questions. Really. I think sometimes people may feel like 
imposters, uh, you know, like, oh, there's all these smart people out there. They're going to like think I'm dumb or not want to answer my questions. But that's not been my experience with Solana. Um, just come in with like a student's mindset and really just ask questions. Yeah, man, it's actually good. Like, like I have my own philosophy. Like, I love being the dumbest person on the room. That's why I do this show because I get to talk to people smarter than me all the time and, and learn a lot of stuff. Like, I don't want to, like, who wants to be the smartest person? Like, I'd rather be, like, s- somewhere way below that so I can learn from the masters. Um, and I definitely learned a lot about MEV today. I just, in the early days, I didn't even put my mind at all towards it because I was like, I don't even have time to try to absorb what the hell Gito's over there doing. So I want to ask one question. Like, what is like, what is Gito? Like, what's the inspiration for this name that, that you guys co-founded? Um, yeah. So we were thinking about, <clears throat> we were thinking about like just in time compilers. Uh, and then we thought like, okay, JIT sounds cool, but you know, that's like a Java thing. And then Gito just kind of like got thrown out there. I forgot which one of us threw it out there, but um, and then, you know, we had to work backwards from that. We we're like, oh, this sounds cool, but like, what does it mean? And then we, <laughs> we were like, okay, it could mean like just in time ordering. So like just in time transaction ordering. And then we we're like, all right, that's cool. What else? Uh, you know, we need like a mascot maybe in the future. And then we looked up the word Jito and it's like, uh, I think it was old Japanese like landlords. And we we're like, oh, that sounds even more badass. Like can like feel like, you know, samurais slinging away <laughs> at code. <laughs> Nice. Well, hey, man, like it was great to have you on the show. Like you've been we've been talking about it for a while. So I was glad to to get a chance to to have you on here and, and like give people a lesson in Mav and, and talk about what Jita's up to. And like and honestly, the coolest part about most of this stuff is really what you were talking about earlier is that you guys are actually passing on the rewards to the validators who are then taking that and passing them back to the users. So they're ca- like the users at the end of the day are c- everybody Gito's are capturing a little bit of value. The validators are capturing a little bit of value. And then the users are also capturing a little bit of value. So like, this is what you meant earlier when you said like, like Mev can be good on Solana, especially like if you do it the right way or like, or, or if it's like done sort of in an altruistic way. So it's really, it's awesome, man. Thanks for being here. And um, see you later. Hey, thanks for having me. See you. All right. Cheers.